Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to one of my favourite film people, filmmaker Mark Cousins, about his great new Alfred Hitchcock film, My Name is Alfred Hitchcock, where Alfred Hitchcock talks to us. Tom Moore of fabled animation studio Cartoon Saloon talks about taking Puffin Rock to the big screen in the new movie Puffin Rock and the New Friends. Plus, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Is it as good as everyone's saying? We find out. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. As I hope you know by now, this show is available every Friday as a podcast on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. Hello to you, my friends. I hope you're well. I was at Billy Joel in Hyde Park on Friday, just gone, and it was wonderful. Regular listeners know I'm a massive fan, but it was a great gig. That man... It's 74 now. He can sing those songs like just the way he wrote them. His voice is undiminished. A fantastic gig in the heat of London. It was about 27 degrees, baking hot. But a wonderful, wonderful show, I have to say. It did occur to me, toy shops in airports. I had a lovely weekend, don't get me wrong. I was only there for a night, 36 hours or whatever. But toy shops in airports, maybe the last vestige of highway robber people because I bought some toys for the three children in my life on the way home. And man, there's a a toy called a Sylvanian, you know, these little animal creatures. And they're expensive at the best of times, but for a, a piece of... Tat that is about the size of like a USB stick, I, I, I paid a king's ransom. And it's the psychology of it because airport to- everything in airports are expensive, but airport toy shops in particular, because you generally have parents missing their children, maybe feeling a little guilty about being away from their children, and they just whack up the prices. I am not the better of it. That said, let's focus on the positives. And Billy Joel was immense. Now, in TV this week, I was watching this. That I have caused enough pain for my family because of my, you know, because of that everyone had to suffer. Maria had to suffer. The kids had to suffer. Joseph, his mother, everyone. I'm gonna have to live with it the rest of my life. I mean, you know, people will remember my successes, and they will also remember those failures. It's a major failure. I mean, I had failures in the past, but, you know, in my career, but I mean, this is like a whole different ballgame. This is like a whole different dimension of failure. Yes, the unmistakable sound of Arnold Schwarzenegger there talking about, well, mistakes he made, particularly in his private life. And this is from the documentary Arnold on Netflix, which I have to say I've really enjoyed. It's been up there a couple of weeks. Myself and Pat Kenny were discussing it this week. He also enjoyed it very much for what it's worth. And it is Arnie, Arnold Schwarzenegger, going through his life in three chapters, three very distinct chapters. The, 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 the episodes are called Athlete actor and politician and you have to bow down to Arnie even if you're not a fan of him he has lived the most unusual life in that he was a bodybuilder he became Mr. Universe then he became the biggest box office draw in the world whether you think he should have been or not 
And then he became the governor of California. So that is a very unusual life. And in this documentary, he traces that life up and up until the present. And he does so very well. He's possibly a little self-serving and maybe doesn't dwell as much as he should on some of the mistakes he made. But in fairness, he does plenty of that as well. And you know what? The alternative is him not being part of this documentary and instead you get all this second-hand information. And what I realised about this three-parter is that, like, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I think it's generally agreed, is not a brilliant actor. But yet, we've watched him all these years in various movies, and it's because he's charming. And in this documentary, he does leave you with the fact that he is very charming. Uh, And you have to applaud the tilt he took at life, you know? And his early childhood was fascinating and kind of sad. He was born in this small town called Tal in Austria. His father was one of those, as he describes him, broken Austrian men after World War II who came home from serving with PTSD and was abusive and drunk with, with his himself and his brother, uh, with Arnold and his brother. And I, that created some kind of fire in him, not that suffering ennobles, as Somerset Maughan tells us, but it certainly lit a fire in him and he was obsessed with America and he was obsessed with bodybuilding. And he went and lived this crazy life and one thing I hadn't realised which is featured in this documentary is that he made his money before he got into movies he had made a lot of money from bodybuilding and being in a documentary called Pumping Iron and, and, and a few TV appearances and invested in real estate and made a lot of money and was a millionaire before he got seriously into movies. So he kind of refused to take any roles that weren't leading man stuff. So the documentary has a lot of very interesting tidbits about his life and times and his time as governor of California is very interesting and you realise that he was probably neither Democrat nor Republican because he kind of got a lot of stuff done uh, without really being particularly Republican or Democratic and it didn't end well because there was an economic slump and all that kind of stuff plus he also fathered the child with a lady working in his house at the time which isn't something that's advisable for politicians, particularly if you're married to a Kennedy and he ended up getting divorced. And the documentary handles that well and he's quite honest about it, as you heard there. So Arnold on Netflix is a really entertaining and insightful watch about one of the biggest movie stars of our time. Our lives are the sum of our choices. This mission of yours is going to cost you dearly. Now, that was a short and not a very good clip from Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 because there weren't really any available, but I do like to, you know, have a bit of audio. I have an aural ambition for this show, if I may be so bold. A woman who also has an aural ambition for this show is Anne-Marie Kane, who, as I tell you most weeks, helps out on this show, indeed, every week. She has previously been on the show talking and reviewing John Wick, and she was packed off to the cinema this week with our two adorable young children to watch the new Mission Impossible movie. And I'm delighted to say she joins me now to tell me if it's any good because it is getting rave reviews. Anne-Marie, how are you? 
Good. Thanks, Sean. How are you? Very good. I'm making it sound like, you know, I haven't spoken to you in a week, but, you know, I've spoken to you minutes ago. But anyway, let's keep the let's keep the illusion alive. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part One. It's a long title. What's going on in this one? Okay, yeah. Long title, long movie. Um, 243 duration. Very, very long. Um, Okay, I don't want to give any spoilers. So. Tom Cruise's uh, character, Ethan Hunt. Its mission is to track down the keys of the entity. What is the entity? Well, it's explained in a very, very long intro in the movie. That's one of the downfalls I found. Um, a long intro that maybe they didn't need. Okay. Okay. So uh, I think it was about 20 minutes. They hit that brilliant team tune music and then the movie starts. So it's to hunt down these missing keys for the entity, which is a powerful AI force that can bring down the world. That's okay. That's all I'm saying. No spoilers. Okay, no, that's pretty good. And it's interesting you say that there's this 20-minute prologue before the action kind of begins proper with the theme tune. They did the same thing in the last James Bond movie. It seems to be this kind of thing. We're going to give you this. And actually, they did it in Indiana Jones as well recently. They give you this set piece, and then they get into the movie. Okay, so he's looking for missing keys and blah, blah, blah. There's AI that's going to take over the world. And I mean, you know, sometimes in these movies, the plot isn't essential. Is it any good? Because I presume there are lots of stunts and all that stuff in the pursuit of this key. There, it is. Um, there is the car chases, train wrecks, shootouts, a bit of parachuting, and a very, very impressive motorbike jump. I wish there was more, John. I was left wanting more. Now, maybe uh, with my kind of John Wick experience, which I loved and was getting into all the stunts and everything, maybe I was wishing that Tom Cruise was a bit more Keanu Reeves, John Wick. Wishful thinking. I think I think it's fair to say you wish every man and every actor and every person was more Keanu Reeves, though. Including you know? my husband. Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> but no, um, he did stuff like paragliding, or sorry, speed fly, which I had to look this up. It's like paragliding. Speed flying occurs closer to the cliffs to achieve more acceleration. Now, what I would recommend after you've seen this, and I say this after, go online and look at the stunts that Tom Cruise does. It really gives you appreciation what this man does. So do it after because watching it, you know, before it could give spoilers. Um, he does the famous Tom Cruise run. And he, uh, in total, he does in all the Mission Impossible movies, it totals to eight minutes of running. So he's famous, <laughs> not like Phoebe from Friends, but that real structured run. Um, he does that. So when you see it, you kind of clap and go, there he goes. He looks great. There's a slight nod to, I found, to the Italian job. It's located in great locations. Again, bringing back to John Wick, they tend to go over these big locations, London, Paris, Rome, New York. Mm. So this featured uh, Rome, Venice and the Alps. Okay. Great um, car chase in Rome and kind of gave a nod to the Italian job, I found. Okay, yeah, well, there's no harm in that. Great movie. You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. But, sorry, I couldn't resist yeah, whenever anyone mentions it. So let's let's go back to you, though. Two things. You're not allowed to mention John Wick for the remainder next three or four minutes. Secondly, though, so great stunts, but are you saying you'd like to have seen more stunts? Yes. Movie went up and down. There was a, uh, and again, I'm saying that it's a long movie, 
but the, it kind of goes in troughs. And I just felt I wanted more action, less of these kind of quieter moments. That's how I describe it. Um, do you know what it came across actually in that scene in Rome? You see um, Tom Cruise and using a bit of humor, and I really, really liked it. It was great. He had great timing, great facial expresses, expressions. I love to have seen that more, or I love to see a new movie with him. I was really drawn in by that. So, um, yeah, went a bit quiet, went a bit confusing at times. I was like, where is the key? Who has the key? How are they going to get the key? It was kind of, now maybe that was just me, but. Um, yeah, it just went to troughs, John. It went okay. great action, quiet, great action, quiet. Ends and the quiet the bits oh, are them, sorry, the quiet bits are them kind of, they're a lot of dialogue, discussions about the keys and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It just got a yeah. bit laborious. Yeah. yeah. Now, okay. maybe it's needed for the movie. I don't know, but I just felt it a bit drawn out. Okay. And then there's just a supporting cast. I know Simon Pegg is in there. How is he and the other players uh, he, in it? He was great. He gives that kind of comedic uh, support as well. Mm. Yeah, just great interaction. Like to see more face to face together with Tom and himself. He's great. Haley Atwell, who uh, plays Grace in it, she is brilliant too. The, the g- great team together. Also, for me, I found the last half hour of the movie brilliant okay action scenes stunts overall like a great movie but the ending brilliant okay and so this is part one so there's definitely going to be a part two are we left on a cliffhanger and you don't have to say what that cliffhanger is no no we're not okay no no okay no 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 No, but are are we are we left on a cliffhanger well something is hanging over a cliff oh wow (laughs) okay Um, yes you are no you you want to see you leave going i want to see part two okay it's not oh my god moment but it is a i want to see part two so this the second movie is set up ready to happen from the first one though right yes and tom cruise he still looks great he is uh he is 61 uh eight years of age. Um I love to actually if you go onto his Instagram, you know his uh, little bio at the end is actor producer and running a movie since 1981. He <laughs> does look really really well, really sharp. Like to see him in comedy, really would. Yeah, well his he does a cameo in Tropic Thunder and he's absolutely okay. hilarious. Oh, I must look that up. Yeah. yeah. Much like the cameo Keanu Reeves does and always be my maybe, but yeah. we can't discuss that. No, so listen, hey, so listen, ah, ah, ah. what are we going to say stars wise for okay. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? We are doing three out of five. Three long, out of five. Okay. Yeah. Long, sometimes drawn out. I wanted more action. I wanted more stunts, but it does leave you going. I want to see part two. So win-win. Okay, so three out of five. So an enjoyable evening at the Cineplex. So that is Anne-Marie Kane, a woman who can bring up Keanu Reeves, even when discussing things like the Reardons or the Angelus. Take your pick. Anne-Marie Kane, thank you very much. Thank you, John. Anne-Marie Kane there, talking to me about Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. And uh, she liked it. So not, not entirely, but for the most part. And it is getting rave reviews. I've yet to see it. There's a lot to be covered. Anyway, up next, the great Mark Cousins on the great Alfred Hitchcock. 
Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now Alfred Hitchcock is one of the most important and indeed studied directors of all time. But a new film puts a very different spin on his work. My Name is Alfred Hitchcock opens in select cinemas in Ireland on Friday the 21st of July. Mark Cousins, a semi-regular guest on this show, is the award-winning filmmaker behind things like the story of film and Odyssey and the eyes of Orson Welles and a whole lot more beside. And he looks at the life of Hitchcock Hitchcock with a new and radical approach through the use of Hitchcock's voice. Well, actually, it's the voice of impressionist and comic Alistair McGowan doing Hitchcock as Hitchcock re-watches his films and we're taken on an odyssey through his whole career from the early silent days, the legendary films of the 50s and 60s and up to his later work and we see all sorts of things along the way. We hear the director explaining camera angles we see him delighting in Strangers on a Train's runaway carousel climax or taking the measure of James Stewart's desire for Grace Kelly in Rear Window it is playful it is joyful it's a real hypnotic ride that I absolutely adored and we get to luxuriate in some classic Hitchcock and I'm delighted to say Mark Cousins joins me now Mark how are you sir I'm great I love that phrase new and radical approach I'm thank you for that John well it, it was and that brings me right to my first question because For anyone who hasn't seen this, they might think, you know, Hitchcock, there's been a lot written about this guy. There's been a lot made of this guy. He is a colossus in 20th century cinema. So why did you want to do Hitchcock? Well, my producer asked me to do it and and he asked me during the COVID times and lockdown. And you remember during those times in COVID, we were looking for structure and you know, each day rolled into the next and each week rolled into the next. And so I thought, that's a good idea. I could watch the Alfred Hitchcock films from 1925 to 1976 in order, all 53 of them, and then come up with a new reading of Hitchcock or a new dive into Hitchcock. So I said, yes. Wow. Okay. So you watched all of them like on consecutive days or over a period of months? Yeah, a couple of days. You know, you get up in the morning and, you know, you shave or you don't shave and <laughs> have your, your breakfast and a bit of toast and then you dive into the Hitchcock world, you know, and it is a very interesting world and it's a complex world as well. So it added to my COVID time. And, you know, as a filmmaker, obviously I'm... I'm, 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 and when I look at something, I'm just trying to think, can I say something about this? Can I have an angle on this? And as you said, you know, I did have an angle, which is talking, which is imagining how Hitchcock himself would describe his own films. Yeah. And what I really like about it is you divide it into six chapters and motifs, themes that you see in Hitchcock. And yeah. I don't know, the prevailing one or the longest one maybe, or, or the one that I took from it a lot, was escape. Yes. And it's a multi-layered approach to escape. But just say a little about how you see escape in terms of Hitchcock. Yeah, well, there's the I wanted to avoid the obvious a little bit, uh, John, you know, so when we think of cinema, we think of escapism, don't we? We yeah. go escape our everyday lives. And so you could say that's a bit obvious, but hopefully what I've done is looked at his characters who are escaping, but also him as a filmmaker, how he escaped conventions, how he worked in, main, in the mainstream, but was a kind of modernist 
uh, how he he looked at camera angles in a way that was different or to other people, you know, influenced by his time in Germany, etc. So I tried to use this idea of escape, both both in a conventional sense, like Cary Grant is trying to escape something in North by Northwest, mm -hmm. but in a slightly more abstract sense as well, to play with, you know, to to have a bit of fun. Yeah. Now you're, you know, I've told you before and people will know you're a great enthusiast for cinema. Yes. And, yes. but what I also like about this is aside from the new approach that, you know, I've described as radical, which it is, but it occurs to me, this could also be a primer for people who know nothing about Hitchcock. Like I supposedly know a bit about movies, but I completely forgot that he had tried his hand at O'Casey with Juno and the Paycock and stuff like that. So, I mean, a person could watch this movie that you've made and go away and just watch all 53 or 56 movies as well like you did well I hope you know I, I think we've talked about this before but I hope that I make really accessible work you know that that invites you in if you've only seen one or two Hitchcock pictures mm -hmm. a lot of people you know if I'm stopped on the street it tends to be by a young person in their early 20s and said say you got me into cinema so I definitely want to make something that's accessible but I also in this case I knew that a lot of people watching this picture would be Hitchcock obsessives and yeah. they of of their sense of what Hitchcock was is so I wanted to do something that was available to new audiences but also to enrich even the people who know a lot mm -hmm. and you know desire is another one of the chapters was Hitchcock in your eyes you know was there a, a Freudian you know sex and death are the great drivers of mankind. And as a Jesuit priest told me once, so there's really only one because sex is a kind of death anyway, but it's like, <laughs> it, it, like how lustful a person do you think he was? And I don't mean in terms of a tabloid, his own life, but I mean, human desire was a huge part of his movie making imagination, right? Yeah, I think he was really honest. You know, he was a fulfilled man. He was a happy man. He had a good you know, marriage, etc. But he also acknowledged that desire is a strong part of life, not only desire for other human beings and maybe bodies, but desire for things like art and form and a kind of exhilaration, you know, a sense that maybe our everyday lives are good and fulfilled, but they're slightly less exciting that we than we would want them to be. And that's a theme in Hitchcock pictures, you know, and even sometimes going further, sometimes you get the sense that his characters, all these beautiful people in their gorgeous cocktail frocks, frocks and dresses, they want to be discomforted. They want to be, you know, shaken up a bit. And you that the desire for uh, a kind of excitement is there in Hitchcock. Yeah. And isn't it something also to do with the fact that maybe he is all things to all men and women in a way? Because I was struck by one point you have him saying, you know, even I dabbled in a little existentialism from time to time. Like th there are so many reads on Hitchcock. Like I, I heard Woody Allen once say he doesn't buy into the idea that there's more going on in Hitchcock. And then at the same time, there are tombs written about his Freudianism and his, and his all sorts of things. Like he really is an incredibly rich filmmaker where there almost seems to be endless interpretations. Yes, I think that's right. You know, because, because, 
there was nothing of the pulpit about Hitchcock. He wasn't trying to preach to us, even though he came from a very Jesuit background. You know, he wasn't trying to, in the 50s and 60s, he wasn't trying to send us messages about social change or the civil rights movement or anti-Semitism or some of those other things that filmmakers were doing. He was hovering on a slightly more dream-like plane, which I think that means that his films have have stood the test of time, but also they're very ambiguous and open to interpretation. So if you want to see a kind of, you know, if you want to see something political in Hitchcock, you can see it. If you want to see modernism in Hitchcock, you can see it. If you want to see kind of impressionism in Hitchcock, you can see it. All of all of which is exciting, you know, because the yeah. films are entertaining in themselves, but yeah. then they afford all these sort of almost cubist views of him you know how, how dazzling is that you know for yeah. film lovers because as we know cinema is a high low country you know it's high art and low art it's entertainment and at its best you know intellectually dazzling and there we've got all of that in hitch yeah i mean it is going to be fighting for oppenheimer and barbie space as well but we, we, we'll so do our sorry. bit here <laughs> i feel so sorry for oppenheimer and barbie you know these on below the radar yeah, no, I know, I know, it's terrible. But listen, Come against me. <laughs> yeah, what can you do? But I just one thing I really liked is you do this thing about his view from above, uh, yes. and I'd never really thought about it that way. That a lot of the camera angles or a lot of the inviting is for us to look up, and yes. I, I was even thinking of that. I, I don't know how much of a fan of the Sopranos you were, but David Chase seemed to do something very similar. Characters were always looking up towards the sky at certain moments for whatever reason. Did that, did you always know that or did did you come to see that when you did this odyssey of the 53 movies? I knew that there was that shot in Dial M for Murder where suddenly the camera goes high and name drop alert. I remember, I remember Martin Scorsese saying to me, you know, when if you want to learn how to make films, watch Dial M for Murder, which was one of the which is not a very admired film of Hitchcock. But there are again and again, the camera goes high mm. and Hitchcock really was interested in music. And it's like a high note in the violin. And so when you look just for like visual height in Hitchcock, you see it in that famous high shot in North by Northwest, on a completely unexpected shot in Vertigo where the camera goes high. And all the time uh, you see this highness. And I, I just love that. Um, it's like, it's, it's unconventional, it's daring, it's hard to explain, but it's fun. And that's why I try to look at it in this film. Yeah. And listen, this may be an unfair question or an impossible one to answer, but is there one of all those movies that you think is, I don't know, the most complete cinematically or the one that means the most to you? You know, Hitchcock made 53 films, John, and and, and I when I look at them, I think 26 of them are sort of masterpieces, like ah. everything he did. But there are certain films that touch me. I mean, I always cry at, at Notorious. You know, I think it's so moving. The end of Notorious when Ingrid Bergman is sort of dying for love. Um, I think that moves me really deeply. But in terms of this time when I watched them, the film Saboteur of 1942 is the one that sort of jumped out 
me. We we know that Hitchcock went to America in 1939. He had this encounter with America, and he made some. He made four films in America uh, before he made Saboteur, but then he made this kind of road movie, passionately liberal picture about the joy of being on the road in America. And so Saboteur is the one that I particularly love. Listen, just away from the documentary, but slightly in keeping, Hitchcock did an awful lot of movies and some of them during the war years, he seemed to be incredibly prolific. I yeah. said you're a regular guest on this show. The great Irish actress Neve Algar is mm-hmm. the guest who has returned the most. She's been on four mm-hmm. times. This is now your fourth appearance. Whoa, I've spoken to Neve. you in the last four years about four different film projects uh, you've been working on and completed. I mean, are you, do you work a lot? It, 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 you clearly do, right? I was working from six o'clock this morning. Uh, and so I've got an, an edit at the moment. I've got four films, John, you know, so I, you know, I'm slightly obsess- obsessive. I'm slightly intoxicated by the filmmaking process. Mm. When I was a, a boy working at, w- growing up in working class Belfast, uh, our teachers asked us, you know, what would you like to do when you grow up? And and in the class, people said, I'd like to be a nurse or a, or a, a fireman or an astronaut. And I said, I'd like to be Alfred Hitchcock. And so <laughs> I have, I have, you know, much to my surprise, given my background, I have become I am a filmmaker and mm-hmm. so I'm still sort of slightly pinching myself and therefore three films a year is not unusual for me. Okay. Okay. And listen, finally, every time I talk to you and you're kind enough never to be pissed off by it. So I'll persevere this time. I always mention to you something about scene by scene, because I think it's the greatest series <laughs> of film interviews ever. But here's the thing. I have a new question because I hadn't realized that Steve Martin was one of the interviewees. And I watched it maybe about six weeks ago on YouTube and the whole thing was there. And I thought it was delightful because I, I kind of think Steve Martin doesn't necessarily get the, the kudos he deserves. I think he's a fascinating guy and the career has been fascinating and continues to be but i'm just wondering he seemed i don't know a bit uncomfortable by the process and you you were your enthusiastic and jolly self but he seemed i don't know a little like i'm not sure this is my thing what was now that was just me looking in but what was your take on him in that process on that day yeah, you're right. You know, that was my first time in Los Angeles. I was a boy, you know, I was meeting Steve Martin and he, 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 you know, he's lacking in confidence. As we know in American cinema, you know, comedies don't get Oscars and the, 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 his films hadn't been very well received. So there was this young, enthusiastic European coming to say to him, your work is interesting. And that's why he was diffident, I think, because okay. he was shy, you know, and I stayed in contact with him a, a, for a bit afterwards because, it, you know, like Hitchcock, Hitchcock didn't win an Oscar as director. And Steve Martin, ha- I think, has been undervalued as a filmmaker and, and mm. you know, comedian and so he was reluctant to engage slightly in that conversation about the fact that there's there's richness in his work fascinating as always well listen my name is alfred hitchcock much to the chagrin of margot robbie and her cast will be released on the 21st of july i've been talking to its filmmaker director writer mark cousins mark always a pleasure to talk to you thanks a million 
And the same to you, John. Mark Cousins there chatting to me about his documentary, My Name is Alfred Hitchcock, which is in cinemas from the 21st of July, Select Irish Cinemas. And uh, it's fascinating. And if you're into Hitchcock, and if you're not into Hitchcock, it, it's very entertaining and makes you want to watch Hitchcock anew. And of course, Mark Cousins, I don't think the man can do any wrong. Just the way he talks about cinema, the passion just hopefully comes off your speaker or wherever you're listening to this. Up next, Tom Moore of Cartoon Saloon on Puffin Rock and the New Friends. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks, TV and Movie Show. Now I've bored you many times on this show by mentioning my three children. However, the youngest is still only four. And there are a lot of children's cartoons in our house, it has to be said. And chief among them, or certainly one of the many that is watched regularly, is Puffin Rock. Which, in case you don't know, is a gorgeous series all about a little group of puffins on an island called Puffin Rock. And it's voiced principally, the narrator is Chris O'Dowd, and he does it delightfully. The Guardian have referred to it as kind of meditative viewing, which I really like. Now, they've just done a movie of it, Puffin Rock and the New Friends, and it follows our favourites, Una, Baba, May and Mossy, who are joined by a new cast of characters in Isabella and Phoenix, and also Marvin, who arrive on the island. When the last little egg of the season disappears under mysterious circumstances, Una and her new friends race against time to bring the little egg home before a big storm hits Puffin Rock. Now, I'm not going to suggest it's vertical or there's any tension like that, but it's certainly a bit more tension-filled than some of the cartoons that I've watched many times. It's directed by Jeremy Purcell, who directed a lot of the original TV series, and it, of course, is from the famed animation stable that is Cartoon Saloon. And I'm delighted to be joined by co-founder and uh, animator from Cartoon Cartoon Saloon, Tom Moore. Tom, hello, sir. Hello, how are you? I'm very good. So why did you guys want to go and do an actual movie of this beloved cartoon? Was it always in your thinking? No, it was an idea that came up at a certain point there a few years ago. It was an opportunity. We had Chinese partners. Of course, we had our partners in Derry and Northern Ireland Dog Years. We wanted mm. to do more with the with the project. And we, I mean, for me, one of the original inspirations for the project was nature and fostering a love of nature and kids and to gently deal with themes like climate change and refugee crisis through um, an episode wouldn't be possible. So mm. a movie was needed, a, a bigger narrative shape. And of course, that now will feed into the next season. Those new characters, those new things will now fit perfectly into seven minute episodes. But a feature film was needed to tell this story. Let's just talk about those themes because they're kind of delightfully handled because we have Isabella and Phoenix. And f- now, Forgive me if I'm wrong here, but Phoenix is a pheasant, isn't that right? A golden pheasant. Um, a, a little nod to our Chinese partners. I mean, Puffin yeah. Rock is really popular there, and um, they were um, a big part, of course, of the project, and uh, they wanted uh, some representation of their nature. And we thought, well, why not? We can have refugees from anywhere arriving in Puffin Rock because of climate change, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she is obviously a pheasant, so she's different to the puffins. And we we get that, I suppose, motif of of being different. But I was obviously thinking about Ukrainian refugees, because that's probably front and center in our minds. Was that in your guys' thinking? Absolutely. We're just recording a Ukrainian version. We have a young Ukrainian woman living with us in our house at the moment. And uh, we were uh, chatting to her about her experience and definitely taking some inspiration from that as well. Yeah. Mm. And then, you know, there's, there's, there's a storm that's coming. Uh, and it's building throughout throughout the whole film. And and Chris O'Dowd at one point near the start actually mentions climate change and all. So, you know, this is aimed at three to six-year-olds, but you're not afraid of, you know, using terms like climate change. Look, three to six-year-olds are going to have to know all about it. So yeah. We can gently give them some hope and give them some inspiration and, and acceptance and understanding of it. Hopefully they can be part of the solution now you know, is ahead of all of us, you know. Mm. The uh, Isabella and Phoenix, you know, they have to come to Puffin Rock and, and they're separated from their parents for a while. And we won't get into what happens in the end or whatever. But yes, exactly. And you can give spoilers in, in Puffin <laughs> Rock as well. Who knew? Yeah. But, mm. but, uh, but, you know, I was thinking about this. Um, my four-year-old, Elliot, incidentally, loved it. Absolutely loved it, right? And he's a fan of the show. And 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 funny, I'll compliment your marketing, but a couple of, he was watching YouTube a week or two ago and a trailer for it came up and he was so transfixed by it. So, but I was thinking there's there's probably a sweet spot between letting kids who, as you point out, are, you know, very aware of things and maybe more than our generation were, but also you don't want to frighten the life out of them. And I was, I was, I was thinking about, you know, mommy or daddy going away. That's, that's the fear number one for a lot of kids. Like I presume you have to be careful with that stuff as well. Oh yeah. I mean, we also had great test audiences, you know, like we, as we developed it, my granddaughter is five now and she's a voice in the movie and she was a Puffin fan. She definitely saw early versions and other kids and people, on the team were very sensitive to that you know plenty of parents here in the studio too um and actually weirdly puffin rock of all our stuff like we make quite kind of our feature films do have a good tinge of darkness to them like my kids movies like bambi or whatever from when i was young but generally puffin rock is our most gentle project and it's most seen because a lot of young kids uh watch it over and over again so we really had to be uh, true to the the gentle nature. Morris Joyce directed the original series. He's working on another project now. But that team, Lily Bernard, who is the art director and the co-creator, and all, they were very important. They built the world that Jeremy then, who had been assistant director on the series, took and expanded and, and built a, a deeper narrative for, you know. So that original team were very sensitive to that. And I think that continued on. Yeah, yeah, well, you pulled it off. And look, it's like saying water is wet, but the animation in this, as in all that you guys do, is is absolutely delightful. You know, I, I mentioned The Guardian there because I happened to read something they wrote about you guys, and they were referring to these as kind of, as I said, meditative pieces uh, that, that adults can get into. And, and I can see that because there's a, there's a gentleness to them, and they talked about the phrase light jeopardy, which I kind of like. Because in some of the episodes, you know, the jeopardy is light, uh, even though this is dealing with climate change and all. But there's a the meditative state of these. I presume that's why parents are enjoying watching these with their own children, I think. 
I hope so. Like the original idea for me came to me in Kerry. Uh, I was with my son who was a lot younger at the time, of course. And uh, when he was a little fella, he loved nature documentaries just as much as watching cartoons. And he was fascinated by the idea of the Puffin Island um, down in Kerry on the way out to the Skelligs where only puffins and guillemots are on the island. There's no humans on the island, you know. Mm. And um, we just sort of thought, what if we had that sort of lovely, gentle feeling of a nature documentary? Um Combined with, as you say, some light jeopardy, there's character in it. And I mean, the movie isn't about climate change. It's about characters. It's about yeah. the kids. And the kids are going to encounter that. Kids are going to encounter people coming from all kinds of reasons. You know, climate is just one of them. Um, and the, the new friends aspect of it, we wanted to keep it gentle, but also show that there can be tensions when new kids arrive into a little community that they're not from. Yeah. And I thought what was captured really well in it is one of the new friends does something that they shouldn't have done. And the way a kid misbehaving can spiral in their own heads is, is wonderfully captured, I have to say, and very on point. You know, did you do that? No, I didn't. Are you sure? I did? No, I didn't. And then they come to you two hours later full of guilt. Also really lucky with Eva Whitaker. She did a voice when she was only eight for Wolf Walkers, the last film yeah. I co-directed. And uh, she's become a bit of a staple in the studio now. She did a voice for the Star Wars short we did, and now she's in Puffins as well. And she's such a talented young actor that she really was able to, to bring a lot of character to Isabel Yeah. Yeah, yeah, beautifully. So now listen, you mentioned Eva, obviously Amy Hoomeran is there, all sorts of gorgeous voice people. But Chris O'Dowd, uh, you know, he just has that, if the world was going to end, you'd want him narrating it because it, <laughs> it wouldn't feel so bad. So was he always the guy you wanted and he seems happy to continue voicing this? Yeah, he's an old friend of Paul's, my business partner. They went to school together in Boyle. Ah, okay. And we'd worked on uh, Moon Boy which was a series that he'd co-created yeah. and we um, did the animation for that. So we were kind of working with him a bit. Now this is years and years back. And when we were first doing the series, we sort of thought of a David Attenborough type, you know, gentle narrator, nature documented, but a little bit, a little bit goofy, you know, making mistakes and, and stuff, very relatable. And uh, Chris was just the obvious choice, you know. And yeah. It was really cute. I remember visiting him in his in his house when he lived in L.A. And his little kid was really young. And he was saying that his little son thought that uh, daddy was the, like, you know, the only voice he heard either on TV. He only watched Puff and Rock <laughs> or in the house he had Chris. So it was kind of cute that the, the kid had to be introduced to the idea that there are other voices on TV other than daddy. You know? <laughs> Wonderful. Listen, I, I mentioned my four-year-old watching these. He also watches, not to mention the competition, Chico Bomb, which is from Brown Bag. And it seems to me, you know, when I was a kid and you were a kid, whatever we watched, Bugs Bunny or Spider-Man, whatever the cartoons were, there was no Irish animation studios uh i've just referenced two in our short conversation i mean you're probably asked this a lot but it seems to me irish animation is in rudish health yeah i mean i'm blown away by what i've seen in my career we're nearly 25 years going now when we set up you know there really wasn't a lot going on brown bag were there they were scrappy and small we all were and now the I actually can't keep up with it. There's so much exciting stuff going on in the country. And hopefully we've inspired the next generation. Um, or maybe they've looked at us and said, we can do better. I don't know. But there's definitely <laughs> m 
several generations now since also studios at different stages and they're all doing exciting stuff so it is great and as a kid growing up here i always thought i'd have to emigrate to work in animation and now there's people emigrating to ireland to work in animation which is fantastic you know absolutely absolutely now i spoke to nora uh you're 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 one of your two partners you're three partners in crime well there's two right there's paul yeah. there's nora and there's you for my father's dragon which was delightful and, and somewhat well, not a change of direction for you but I, I i thought it was expanding the the palette of what you guys do but the last time i spoke to you was about your favorite movie which was rocky and yeah. I hope it still is. And you were about a week out from the Oscars and you did a great kind of finish up where you aped Rocky and said you were just a bum from the neighborhood who yeah. was hoping for his title shot and all that kind of stuff, which was great. And I felt really bad for you then a week later when you didn't win for Wolf Walkers. <laughs> and I just wonder, you're, you're kind of an honest broker and all these things. Did you have the blues for a few weeks after that? Oh, no. Oh, no. no. By the time the Oscars came around, it was obvious it was going to be sold, you know, but you kind okay. of, you have to sort of keep a little bit of a spark alive, you know, for the fun okay. of the evening. But no, I've <laughs> never had the blues about being nominated for an Oscar, I have to say. It's amazing <laughs> just to be part of it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure there are many more nominations and hopefully wins in your future. I should say Puffin Rock and the New Friends is in cinemas this week, the 14th of July, uh, before the madness of Barbie and Oppenheimer and last week's Mission Impossible. So hopefully lots of people will go to see it. If you have a three and possibly even seven-year-old, because my seven-year-old was coyly watching it as well, it is delightful from start to finish. It's from the stable that is Cartoon Saloon. And I've been talking to one of its founders, Tom Moore. Tom, thanks a million. No worries, Gurmila. It's another glorious morning on Puffin Rock. It's a great place to... Una! <laughs> I was in the middle of my intro. I'm Una. This is Marcy, May and Baba. Come with us and we'll show you around. Yay! <laughs> I have someone I'd like you to meet. Isabel, Marvin, and Phoenix. They're new to Puffin Rock. I'll never be able to remember all these names. <laughs> I don't like it here. It's not home. But that doesn't mean we can't make it a new home. What's that? It's a puffin egg. Ooh. Baby egg, baby egg. It's the only one we have. Uh-oh. It looks like a big storm is coming. We need to get ready. A clip there from Puffin Rock and the New Friends. The movie from Cartoon Saloon, which is in cinemas this week, the 14th of July. And look, it's, you know, it, it's a movie for kids. But if you have a two to six year old in your life, it is joyous animation you know if you know cartoon saloon their movies which are pencil drawn look beautiful their their tv shows look beautiful and puffin rock is a gorgeous children's cartoon with with light jeopardy and i wasn't just playing up to tom there uh, my son elliot absolutely adored it uh, and and at one point on his way to bed that night was going puffin rock punching the sky that's that's a true story so so puffin rock uh is is one to go to the cinema with with your chaps and it's only about an hour and 15 or 17 minutes and so given the age group that it's aimed at it, it's a perfect length to go to the cinema because kids do get bored in the cinema but my fella didn't with puff and rock and and was a gog watching it in a good way 
That's it for this week. Thanks to Anne-Marie Kane doubly this week who helped out on the show because she was also on the show. If you want to get in touch with me any stage, please do so. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. As always, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm on News Talk. Enjoy the remainder of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening.